I don't know if you saw over Facebook, there was all these um, people posting these like Valentine's Day challenge things where they answer questions, like kind of very typical. Oh, like, like how well do you know your S, like your significant other? Yeah, kind of like that, like, but also like it was oh. kind of funny because it was like a one-way conversation. Someone would be like, I don't know, who is the first to say I love you or who is more funny or who sings better, these type of questions. So someone posted that and I was lying next to my girlfriend and I was going through it and then I showed it to her because I thought it was funny. And so we were going through kind of the questions a little bit and we came to the question of um, who who's the first to admit that they're wrong? And Ooh. my girlfriend was like, oh, me, of course. Question. And I was like, what are you talking about? And we had like a 10 minute discussion about this one question about like that is a true that's a true test. Yeah, like, you know, and it, it was it actually was funny because Actually, I think she's right. She is more quick to admit she's wrong and more stubborn and take things more personally. Oh, but same. it was funny because it like branched out into like when we're in the middle of an argument, who's like the first one that kind of wants to like make things better and these things. Yeah, it was like a very just... long discussion about it. And that's like the first thing that popped in my head when you were talking about like people not being able to say like, oh, we were wrong or. Well, yeah. I think that like has like that has connections to like politics, right? Like. Right. People are so unwilling to to admit, like, to themselves. They feel like it's a sign of weakness to be like, oh, I'm wrong. So, like, in personal relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, whatever, like, you feel, you feel like it's a weakness to be like, oh, yeah, I, I admit that I was wrong. Like, I'll mm -hmm. be the first to say it. And it's like, in politics, that is enhanced, like, tremendously. It's like, I would never say that. My party's never wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's like... Or you can't you ever know, just forget something, you know? You can't be Amy Klobuchar who forgets to the president of Mexico. Yeah, well, that, that's a whole other issue, right? <laughs> yeah. Hello and welcome to another episode of The World in Perspective. I am, of course, Cameron Vasquez, your host and editor-in-chief of ITS. I am here in Cincinnati, joining me from Bon Jovi's new private residence across the river in Bonn, Germany, <laughs> is uh, Melissa Ballard. Uh, and then hold up somewhere in, again, what is generously described as central Massachusetts. Today, we're going to do a little bit of a different format for this episode. We're going to be talking about democratic renewal. Um and backsliding throughout the world with an emphasis in particular on the, in this conversation. This will be part of a sort of larger theme that we can sort of return to, um, no doubt, throughout the, uh, the life of the podcast this season. But uh, today we're going to be talking specifically about the United States. So, of course, the United States Senate just convened uh, less than a week ago now, I think it was only two, three days, to hold the trial of Donald Trump um, per the House's impeachment inquiry um, that was submitted to the Senate. Uh, and of course, as pretty much the entirety of uh, the political class knew, you know, ad in advance, the uh, Donald Trump was acquitted. Either of you, what does this mean, really? I mean, why, why have the impeachment, right? For our listeners, why would you even have the impeachment process if you know that there's nothing to come of it? The first cynical reaction, I guess you could say, is that it gives airtime for Democrats to speak to the public. I mean, in all honesty, like this is kind of my first reaction is that it was kind of a done deal. There was no way that, you know, Trump is going to be convicted. It is a little surprising that 
we had at least seven Republican senators, I would say. I'm a little bit surprised by that there were seven, which is, you know, great. But I mean, everybody knew, like you said, everybody knew it was kind of a done deal. Um, but I think the Democrats came away looking pretty good. They got, they got to air some unseen footage. They got to, you know, kind of rebring this jarring event up and, and appeal to the public and why their vision and their view of what happened on January 6th matters. And in the kind of this day and age where you're fighting for airtime that, that Matt, that's important. I mean, is that purely in terms of politics? Like, hey, this was a really good political stunt. Nice job. Or, I mean, for me, that that is all true. I, you know, whether that is the primary motive or not, I, I question. I mean, you hope not, right? You hope that... Right, you hope not, of course, but I do think that there's... Like, that. that's an additional motive regardless, right? Like, no one escaped, you know, that that's the the big obvious, like, hey, here's a win for us, staring you in the face, right? But I think the ultimate motive for why to do it as to why not, regardless of whether or not it's good for you, was these events needed to be contextualized again, right? That the nation... was didn't have any real time to kind of process them and Mm. we're still talking about it you know over a month later obviously from all angles of the political spectrum you know what the narrative is is different but it's important to at least set the set the facts straight right here's what happened in what order here's video evidence here's what's going on we think this is improper and you know violation of the oath of office and we're going to censure him essentially for that, right? It's a it's polit- it's a political censure of a kind to say, look, if for no other reason than than for posterity, when they look back at previous cases, that at least somewhere someone's like, okay, the House at least thought this was not not an acceptable activity for a president to be undertaking. I would say, I mean, I agree with you and Melissa, but I also kind of going like on a similar note to that. I think it's also just. Like, as Melissa said, symbolic, I I don't think that, like, they could have kind of left this issue unaddressed. And the fact that we're still talking about it a month later, that unseen footage came out of these trials is is important because it drives home the fact that Democrats are, are showing that this type of behavior is not going to be just kind of swept under the rug, no matter how much people are you know, it's over, it's done with, he's out of office, kind of let's move past this as a country. And Well, how are you supposed to, you know, tackle democracy on a global stage as backsliding is continuing to occur if you don't even tackle it at home. And I think symbolically, it's it was a way for even if they didn't think that it was going to be successful in terms of actual impeachment, I think it was a way for for Democrats specifically to just continue to mar, you know, President, former President Trump's image and like on a political realm and kind of send a message to the rest of the world who are experiencing maybe similar issues in their countries that where we're determined to tackle it at home and hopefully under President Biden, that will also translate to uh, tackling, you know, democratic backsliding in other areas of the world, either with our allies or just in, you know, regions that are uh, politically unstable and democratically fragile at the moment. So I think it was definitely symbolic in my in my point of view in that, you know, it might not have been, might not have turned out the way that they hoped, but it, it did do a lot in terms of pushing this narrative that we're not going to keep this unaddressed, we're going to do something about it, even if it's it's not going to kind of be the outcome that we wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. I, I would absolutely agree with that. Like, it, it's, it's a matter of, yeah, recording it for the records, um, if anything else, 
it's just also it but at the same time you got to have to think that it's a little bit disheartening that you could have so much evidence presented like mm-hmm. people literally were recording themselves in the halls of the congress saying we're here for trump you know there's so much evidence that speaks against or speaks in conviction for the conviction of trump but you know they didn't convict him and only seven republican senators actually voted to do what the evidence overwhelmingly pointed to and i think it's a little disheartening for people to think that like i mean the topic today is of democracy and renewal and like if our democracy is unable to agree that a president who as the evidence has shown egged people on to commit violence basically or to at least to halt the democratic process then you know what does that speak about democracy if we can't even hold a president accountable for that I think we need to distinguish here between democracy per se and then mm. our democracy and our republic republican small r system yeah, right enough, yeah. democracy okay. small d and repu- our republic small r right so democracy per se is is this this idea of a form of government generally that's represented by the people right run by the people for the people and i think it's a little bit vain and, and and often over i mean it's used in in the sort of vernacular of of political science commonly to 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 say you know hey you know if if uh we're failing you know democracy isn't able to do this here that we then often equate that subconsciously or consciously with the failure of democracy per se um and of course there are many other systems of democracy and and this kind of drives home at the main main thing that surprised me right you mentioned you know why even with this overwhelming amount of evidence there is a highly partisan vote which is most often attributed to the fact that the republicans who voted to acquit trump you know even mcconnell who mm-hmm. after he voted to acquit him basically launched into this speech about why it was wrong for him to have done it in the first place he basically found him guilty in his speech and acquitted him in in the uh, the trial. So you have on the one hand all of this evidence amounted to at least one one additional Republican senator voting to convict than the six that we anticipated. But but that was worth one Republican senator's vote, all of that evidence. And that's because of the two-party system that we have in the United States, I think. So our democracy has this major flaw which is both institutionalized and absent of official documentation in the terms of our government which is to say that our government doesn't recognize the party system by design because our founders didn't want to have political parties of course they are a fact of life and they've been embedded in the united states since well well before really and then certainly after george washington's uh tenure mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. We have this functionally two-party system, and that's based on the voting, the voting system that we use, of course, which is first past the poach, which always trends towards two parties. We have the the Constitution Party, and we have the Green Party, and we have the Libertarian Party. They have virtually no systemic chance at victory anywhere in large numbers because of this system, which means whoever gets the most votes wins. So if you are a Libertarian voter you really truly believe in the libertarian party's values and you want to vote on libertarian lines you are faced with a dilemma constantly which is how likely is it that my candidate will win versus how likely is it that the candidate i most dislike will win 
and you have to vote strategically. That's not a failing on the part of the voter. That's the system、mm-hmm. that's built. That, in turn, down the line, informs how Congress works and how all state governments work as well, where it's an us versus them attitude. And I think this is perhaps the largest systemic flaw in our democracy, and one which, monumental as it is, needs to be resolved in the long term. Preferably in the medium to short term, I think we may be closer than we think to a a significant constitutional reform moment where that is possible all of a sudden, because if you'll recall, about thirty thousand years ago, in an age which was called twenty sixteen, we were looking at the the election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and while they don't necessarily constitute the same group of people. There was a majority of Americans that disliked Trump, and a majority of Americans that disliked Hillary Clinton. So, with essentially fifty percent or more of the population disliking both candidates, I mean, how do you end up in a scenario like that?、Hmm. If if you'll indulge me just one moment further, imagine a Senate which was a multi-partisan Senate. Right, there are multiple parties. I don't think we can. Rid ourselves of the institution that is the informal institution that is the party system. It helps organize ideas around a common framework, and organize politicians to a common cause and voters to a common group of people with which they most identify. I don't think we can get rid of parties, but imagine a multi-partisan Congress, the multi-partisan Senate, during this last impeachment trial, of which the Republican Party is only one part, perhaps a large part of the Senate, perhaps not, but with even. A relatively well, not even you know perfectly well, diversified Senate. You might have seen a lot more come, not just in terms of legislation through the Senate, but you might have also seen a lot more evidence, a lot more interest in the process, and a lot more interest in learning, because there is no longer this: do we control or do we thwart the opponent? Because to do so allows you to then pursue your your agenda instead of directly pursuing your agenda. And perhaps your agenda even coincides plenty with that of your opponent, but you want to be the one to advance it. You want to be seen as getting the credit.、Mm-hmm. So I think really what we're talking about when we're talking about all of the political drama that's been going on over the last four plus years is back in the back of my mind is this kind of conversation and looking、mm-hmm. at these things.、Mm-hmm. Would there have been seven or more senators then that were convinced in addition to those original six? Perhaps not, but perhaps so. I think that issue you bring up of when it comes to you know the final election, especially specifically like presidential elections, you know most voters in 2016 and also like last year, right? It was you know it was more of the mindset of I'm going to pick the least worst of the two candidates. It's not oh one is clearly better aligns with perfectly everything that I stand for. It's like no, both of these candidates have flaws.、Uh, neither one I am totally on board with, but which one is Not as bad as the other one, right? And so that type of mindset of voting is just, you know, groundwork for just a lack of progress going forward, right? Like, how are you supposed to make progress on anything that you promise if half the country voted for you but doesn't nec- like only because they didn't like the other candidate that you were running against, right? So that is something that has been, that is the mindset that has kind of continued for several, several, several years, right? And it's something that I don't see kind of going away super quickly. Or rather quickly as as hope as much as we hope,、um, but you know that filters down to even local politics, right? It's just something that is so concentrated in American politics that 
you know, it's not, you know, A versus B. It's like, okay, well, which one is, you know, not as bad as the other one? Which one do I settle with? And the fact that we're settling with candidates and settling with policies that they're putting forth, like that is not, to me, that is not how the political system should be working and it needs to be reformed. But like, you know, it's not going to happen quickly and you need people that are going to back it. Um, And you brought up the fact that like, as soon as people are elected, it's not necessarily... They prioritize halting their opponent or the other party's officials rather than they do putting all their effort into progressing their own policies. So it's not only, you know, it's more about let's stop them rather than progress ourselves forward. And that mindset is also rather restrictive and destructive. And it just I don't think that it helps anybody um, in the long run. So that also just not only reforming the system, but, you know, how we view how our political system works Um is, it's just like something that needs to be addressed. And I think, as Cameron mentioned, it's being talked about more, but not much has, you know, has changed as of yet. You're exactly right, Diana. And I want to highlight something you said there as well, that it's not likely to happen soon, but it's become even more of a problem. And not only are you looking at the candidate who is, or rather, it is the fact that you are looking for the candidate who is not as bad as the other candidate, not the better of the two candidates. It's not a positive calculation you're making, saying which one of these most closely represents the policies that I wish were pursued. It's which of these two has the agenda that I can swallow most easily for too many Americans. Of course, there are plenty of Americans for whom a lot of the policies do really line up with them. Otherwise, you wouldn't have people voting for that kind of party either, right? And so it's just this scenario where you have politicians playing to the opposition more than they're playing to themselves in terms of trying to get elected. Mary Taylor Greene was elected exclusively, almost exclusively on the basis that she was going to go and, and and issue articles of impeachment for Biden and we were going to get Biden out of the presidency and return Trump, right? My side versus their side. So I think we also have to c- consider that this is a lot of an element of populism to it as well. This is fueling populism. Yeah, and I, I, like, I agree completely with you. I think that the good note in, in the last four years has been a lot more conversations in regards to what would a new system look like when we not necessarily a new system but a reform system look like and there's been a lot more public awareness about some really flawed aspects of American democracy whether it's gerrymandering um, the electoral college to be honest it's an outdated system um, that was invented for a different time period to the two-party system and the fact that so many people who live within a district are just not having their voices heard to, you know, in a distant, perhaps distant future, statehood for unrepresented parts of America, whether it's, you know, Washington, D.C. or Puerto Rico. And these are all, you know, the good news is we've had a lot of discussions, and I think that's continuing to come up again and again. People are starting to realize how gridlocked the current kind of partisan system is at the moment. Uh, But kind of switching to that, switching to kind of a different line of thinking is that uh, you you still had a candidate who won a U.S. election that was 
stated to be, I believe by the FBI, the most secure election in the United States history. It was investigated by the nonpartisan Department of Justice, and there was no fraud, you know, widespread fraud, fraud found. It was found to be, you know, a safe and secure election, but you still have, I don't know, some like 70 to 90% of the people who did not vote for the winning candidate still think that it was a fraudulent election. So that, that speaks to a deeper issue in that, as you mentioned just before, <laughs> I cut you off, Cameron, uh, you have wider forces of populism and also wider tactics that kind of wear away what is already sound democracy. So not only do you have flawed institutions or outdated institutions, you have other sources that are kind of wearing down the solid institutions that we do have. And you see that all over the world, I think, 2020 was a just a horrendous year for democracy, to be honest. I think it, overall, what, do you, what was it, the, the Economist Group, I think, downrated the democracy average global score a few points this year, and that's the first time it's fallen in... In Freedom Houses. Yeah, yes. It, yes yeah. Just a horrendous year for democracy. You've had so many countries backsliding, and I mean, the coronavirus pandemic made it easy for a lot of governments to either postpone elections or as we've seen in a few recent countries for you know Myanmar, Myanmar. exactly is <laughs> the first thing you think of right like the military stepping in and basically avoiding what was also a uh, sound election burgeoning democracy yeah. yeah exactly i wanted to highlight something that you said there um as well that that the electoral college is is an old system designed for a, a previous time. Uh, I would direct a lot of people to CGP Gray on YouTube. Um, his videos uh, about yes, the Electoral College videos. are actually very succinct. Yeah, yeah, they're great. They're wonderful. Very succinct, um, very factual, and just sort of very well put together to kind of, in a nutshell, this is what this is. The biggest thing, though, that I'm concerned about is the proposed solutions. You look at a lot of these issues... And there are a lot of really intelligent people saying, here's our problem, so let's fix this. But it's part of a larger problem that perhaps either they are or aren't aware of, but nevertheless, the result is to, to institutionalize another part of the problem by, to get rid of another. So in, in this case, it's getting rid of the Electoral College uh, by the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Uh, and CGP Grey has an interesting video on this as well. My problem with it but essentially what it is, is it's a compact that states would sign to say once there is a majority of of electoral college votes within the the purview of the states that are signatories to the compact, the compact comes into effect. And that is that each state will give all of their electoral votes to the candidate that has the most number of votes uh, in the popular vote. Here's my problem with it. That sounds wonderful, right? You're going to use the Electoral College to make the Electoral College itself irrelevant. Instead of trying to pass Congress, which of course points to we're going to ignore the larger problem, which is that Congress is dysfunctional, apparently, and unable to pass some sort of reform. We have no faith in the fact that Congress will actually reform the Constitution to amend this and get rid of the Electoral College, but rather we're going to use this roundabout way, which is very clever, However, here's the problem with that. That institutionalizes a two-party system. That institutionalizes the two-party system. If you give the, the presidency 
to the candidate who wins the most number of votes, that's the key word there, the most votes in the popular vote, you can win the, the most votes and have a plurality. Mm-hmm. Imagine a system with seven parties, a very healthy, multi-partisan democracy. None of them is likely to get to, or at least you hope none of them is likely to, to get an overwhelming majority in any scenario where there's just one party that, that for likely other institutional reasons, problems, out completely trounces all other competitors on every issue. And so in that scenario, you're going to give, you're going to make it even more difficult for us to actually circumvent the problem that is two-party system and institutionalize this sort of catfighting between the Democrats and the Republicans. And that's, I think, also why you have so many young people like some of us on the podcast, you know, our age and then definitely younger ages who are completely apolitical. That's changing some. And there's a lot of great advocacy work out there being done to engage young people. And we're seeing a surge uh, from what we had had. But there are too, far too many Americans in general that don't just they just don't vote. They don't participate in politics because they feel there's no meaningful way for them to express their their views. And that, I think, constitutes a large body of those people who fall between the two parties, where neither is really politically in line with with their views or with what they wish. And they have no other meaningful way to change the options that they are given when it's time to vote. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's crazy to think that, like, we just have come to the end of the democracy project, so to say. I mean, the United States, when it was first founded, women couldn't vote. We had, you know, people who were in slavery. And, and it's crazy to think that, that the United States is at the end of it all. Like, you know, heaven forbid that we would change the electoral college system or heaven forbid we would change the number of representatives we have in the House or all of these other measures. No, of course not. That's, that's ridiculous. We, we're, democracy is always in constant, a constant project that we're always working on. And you can see kind of the creaks and strain that democracy is under a little bit as it's coming under, you know, as people... As, I'd say a little bit more yeah, than a little, a little bit. bit more, yeah. especially in the last year. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, it's... It's. It wasn't until 1954 where Asians who came as immigrants could even be naturalized. I mean, that was 1954. You know, literally, they could not become citizens, Asian Asians who immigrated here. That wasn't that long ago, you know? And so it's crazy to think that we cannot have this topic and it be a realistic goal, that we can continue this democracy project. Well, people are trying to push for change and progress and, and add that... People are trying to re put like reformed and you know enact change on top of these historical mechanisms and institutions, and it's like you have it as your foundation, and people are just trying to oh let's change it a little bit enough, and we'll just kind of keep adding on to it instead of hey let's look at the root cause of of why this two party system has flourished and is still so successful. Let's address that rather than just kind of trying to as Cameron said do all these like little roundabout ways of fixing it that don't have long term viability, right? Like. It's like any conflict, right? You have to look at the root core, the root issue. And while it may take years and years and years to finally address, baby steps to, that's that's what you need to focus on, right? You can't do all the surface level things and expect change to be long lasting if you're not actually hitting at the root of the, the issue. It's like you can hit the low hanging fruit of the tree, but you know the core of the thing is still there and you have to address that as well. Um, and you know otherwise change and, and a healthy democracy is, is not going to 
to be the reality for, you know, the next however many years, especially if this two-party system, the animosity that exists between them um, and that are kind of driving young people, younger generations away just from politics in general, you know, that's not going to change, unfortunately. Do you guys ever have a tree or see a tree that was growing well and too close to a house? Too close. So that it, it's grown huge and the roots are just, you know, driving at the foundation and it's kind of cracking the walls, perhaps with the basement and, and it's it's overwhelming the roof as well with the branches. This is this is in in my mind, this this tree is our problem. This is these this is the larger institutional problems that we have and the roots of the actual problem are these the, the trees roots it's essentially trying to cut down the branches because they're they're damaging the roof while the foundation of your house is crumbling mm-hmm. uh and i think that's what a lot of these organizations are doing very well intentioned right here's the here's the stuff that we can very easily address but to uproot mm-hmm. that entire tree we can cut it down as many times as we want but the root system's still going to be there the tree will still be there and the problem will still be there and we can't actually do anything about it until we actually address the problem. And it's going to take a lot of digging. It's going to take a lot of digging. It's going to be extremely difficult. This reminds me of that photo of, of, of the, I think it was House Democrats, who were kneeling on the floor of the Capitol oh, building yes. post, you know, yeah. the George Floyd protest. They were kneeling at, and that's very, like, symbolic and whatever. But how in the world does that address, like, the very deeper problem of systemic inequalities that have been allowed to flourish for you know almost 200 years now you know what does it do you know, you have to get down to the hard work of addressing that instead of symbolically kneeling on the house of the capital fluoride i guess yeah we try to pacify people yeah exactly i agree with you it's 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 like the uh the, the meme you know everybody loved that but it then then the, the the comments are all great now when are you gonna you know everybody loves seeing the photo op it's a brilliant picture it shows you care about the issue. We we love that. That's nice, you know. But it's not doing anything. You know, I can take as many pictures of I want as I want, kneeling everywhere. But it's not going to solve the problem of systemic racism. It shows that I'm with them, right? And of course, on some level, the problem of systemic racism is is also a societal one. But to the extent that government can help, which is to a great extent, you know, there are so many different challenges to be addressed. And so I think really for all these issues, every problem that we could ever want to solve, climate change, economic inequality, you know, housing reform, infrastructure. You remember we had infrastructure week planned for every week of the last four years and it never happened. A new healthcare plan, overhauling that, you know, every possible issue. And this seems to be the biggest gridlock, roadblock tree in your backyard that's strangling your property problem that we have and nobody everybody would be better off if we addressed that head-on first because then everything else can happen much easier and well into the future but everybody's got their own issue and nobody wants to take this on i agree with that though and like what you mentioned previously i think melissa said this but it's it's a these types of larger like structural foundational issues i feel like for a lot of politicians are, you know, to mention them to do a photo op is to check a box off and say, hey, I, I'm, I notice that this is a problem. Uh, this photo op is a way of me addressing it. I'm, I'm pacifying, you know, the issue. I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing your anger. I'm saying, okay, I did something. But not many people are willing to actually dig in and, and do that hard work and, you know, 
fix the foundation of the house, so to speak, right? Like they, they also, a lot of people are also hesitant to acknowledge the role that their own party has had, not only their own party, but just like society has had in, in furthering these issues, like systemic racism, right? Like you can't fix that overnight, but there's so much that the government could do to, to you know, push for change in a positive direction. But, uh, you know, checking off a box and doing a photo op is, is one thing and actually trying to reach across party lines, which goes back to, you know, the fact that we have a two-party system, it's so ingrained in our society, trying to reach across party lines and actually get to the root of, hey, let's actually do something, we would be so much better off without it, you know, it's, people don't want to do that, right? They're like, I only have so many years in office, I have to, you know, I have to focus on my own re-election, I have to make sure that my party stays in power, like, I'm not, you know, I'll do all these minor things. It's the things incentive structure. Exactly. Which needs fixing to fix the problem that it causes. Unless someone is going to be extremely brave and say, look, I know that this is not in my best interest. I know that this isn't even in my party's best interest, but it's in the country's best interest. And that's why I'm stepping up. Like, how can you push that we are such a, a great democratic country if you're not willing to, you know, sacrifice, I guess, your own self-interest of re-election or whatnot, or your party's interest for the good of the great, you know, the greater good, right, of the entire country's population. That is that is hard work that we need to see people do right like and not a lot of politicians especially as we've seen recently are are willing to do that to get their hands dirty and to you know push aside their own self-interest to do it for you know what is good for the country in the long term yeah i mean you had you had adam kinziger is that how you say his last name kinziger the representative so. yeah i think that's how you say his last name <laughs> not 100 percent sure <laughs> Yeah, he he voted to to he was one of the Republicans who voted to impeach Trump in the House, and he he had he had his cousin send him a letter that was signed by multiple people in his family that said basically we're ashamed of you. We were once proud of your accomplishments. And he served in I think in the Air Force, by the way. We were once proud of your accomplishments, but you've brought shame to the family name or the Kinsinger name. Um, this speaks to a larger problem when when your own family like basically disowns you. I mean, this is a man who was elected to the U.S. House of Rem- Representatives, and I believe he served in in the Air Force. Don't call me on that, but I, in, in, he he obviously is a distinguished person, and he's standing up and has defended his convictions in why he he went against his party, and he still gets disowned by his own family. And I think this speaks to a much wider problem of of the populist forces that have been active in the country for the last few years and obviously deeper deeper issues that have come out of you know the John Birch society and you know we can get into this kind of very deep <laughs> topic that is a totally separate issue from our institutional failures within our democracy but that but this is a symptom of those isn't it i mean, it, I mean it you're exactly right it, it is a bit yeah i mean it is def- definitely a part of it but I, I mentioned it earlier, but there, there are still other, other forces that have also eroded. And I don't know if that, you know, you can maybe tie that. I don't know, Cameron, if you can really tie that into the two-party system. But for example, you know, we've spent four years attacking our media. <laughs> you know, like the, the media is simply not being trusted the way that it was. I've heard, you know, people tell me straight to my face, like, I don't trust the media, whatever media means whatever they define media as yeah yeah. any form of media i mean but of course they're consuming some kind of media and and reading some kind of news yeah exactly the mainstream media media. quote unquote the mainstream media is whichever one you dislike yeah like that is the that is the proliferating you know mindset these days 
And, and so again, I think this, but this here's, here's how I tie that to the two party system, right? Pop, first of all, this is something you guys have heard me can say Can you tie times. everything to the two party system camera? I wonder how far I can push this. <laughs> we can, we can test this. Can Probably can, pretty you know, far. My fear of water. Can you tie that to the two party system? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not actually afraid of water. I will, I will find a way. Um, okay. no, but genuinely this, this is genuinely, I think not a, it's not a direct result. But it is the result, like this would not actually happen without a two-party system in this fashion, I think. To me, to my mind, the only way that it's even possible for us to say we have this extreme distrust, I won't even listen to this other news outlet at all because they are quoting lies and everything is first you have to have someone to dislike. We've made that the other party. Two, you have to believe that everything that they're saying is to their own advantage, their own benefit or lies. And then three, you have to incarnate that in some other news network that that for some period of time reliably reported facts that disagreed with your narrative or reported them in a way that disagreed with your narrative. And you end up with this crazy, highly partisan attitude towards the media. And I don't think that would really be possible in the same way that we have seen it for the last eight years, perhaps in the United States. Well, it's like also your, your, the, the two party system really forces this allegiance mindset that if you are, if you have a toe out of line, you, they're going to come for you, right? Because they're not like you are seen as uh, traitorous to a degree, like Liz Cheney, right? The amount of a, the amount of people that spoke out against her for just speaking her mind and saying, hey, this is what I believe and this is what I believe is right. Like the amount of people from her own party that attacked her is just just because she, you know, parted ways from what the majority of the group, you know, decided is absurd, right? Like one toe out of line and they all, you know, come at you because you are not bending to the will of the the party's greater, like, you know, greater decision or mindset, right? And I think in terms of the media, it's that that narrative that oh you know for example fox news is more republican and cnn is democratic right and it's like that's all they're ever going to be it's the this lack of willingness to reach across to the other side which is just an inherent failure of the system you never acknowledge when you're system. wrong and um, you always claim the opposition is wrong you never acknowledge that they had maybe you had a good point there yeah right i like, should rethink that i don't know these are yeah. words i've never heard a politician really speak in my life except when they legitimately don't know and it doesn't matter. And if they did that, and if people did that, they'd be like, what right. the heck are you doing? Why are you siding with them? And it's like, can we not agree that this is a major issue we both need to address? Like, this is not a a party cause issue. This is a, a countrywide issue that both of us can address. Like, I don't get why. <laughs> That's always so frustrating about this is that, you know, that is <laughs> that is the lack of willingness to just kind of reach across the aisle and say like, hey, we both have this issue in common. We both want to, you know, make the country a better place for everyone. Why don't, you know, why don't we have those conversations for a country that's so bent on having this open dialogue? Why can't we do that at the most basic level when it comes to just like decision making, right? Like why is there, and that that's just further enhanced by media disparities and the narrative that your party always has to be right and, and so on and so forth. But that is just another failure that is, has become more uh, visible in the past few years. And I think more people are obviously taking notice of it, but that's also yet another side effect that has to be talked about and addressed. The larger question is like, so 
on Twitter, you can see the whole discourse oh, of Nikki Haley yeah. being like, you know, it was wrong to follow Trump, right? And so the mm-hmm. instant she opens her mouth and says, like, oh, you know, we were wrong. We shouldn't have, you know, followed Trump as far as we did Everyone and so on. Goes, so she kind of, you know, but you did. backs away you from Trump. You know? Yeah, but the minute she does that, now everybody starts saying, too late. It's, you know, too late. You know, you can't, you can't just say that now. And there's, you know, she's not given an inch of credit, you know, for, for doing what she does now, which, you know, of course, we all have our own thoughts about how far you can, you know, ride the so train before the do you think that sh- like, How much credit do you think should be given to these people, though, if, if after four or so years of people saying, this is just morally wrong, right? Like, I... I applaud you for finally using your voice and admitting and, and taking that, you know, public mm-hmm. stance of, I probably shouldn't have done this. And, you know, I realize the damage it's caused, etc. But like, how much do credit do you think that they actually, mm. like, should receive? Yeah, especially really to the extent of question. how damaging some policies were on just an individual level to yeah. certain people. I mean, it's one of those, like, you can't forget things, right? You're not going to forget that Nikki Haley, you know, stood by Trump for as long as she did. But you also have to be like, okay, yeah, I'm, you know, you're right. And you guys shouldn't have followed Trump as long as you did. And, you know, now I appreciate that you're saying you for it, saying it, right? Thank you, I don't know. Yeah, like, exactly. Isn't, isn't this, doesn't yeah, this point to a larger you know? problem, though? Which is that inherent with the pu- within the public's reaction is that that Nikki Haley has some sort of ulterior motive for apologizing or saying, hey, we were wrong to do this. Let's not do this anymore. And that in some cases, I mean, plenty of cases, that's that's true that there is an ulterior motive, but it obviates the ability for politicians to you know really say hey i was wrong without there appearing to be ulterior motives either even if there aren't i mean she's going to be treated as though she's now trying to sway Mm -hmm. the uh the 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 moderates or something like that right like it's this inherent belief after the fact that you're only saying something for your own gain as opposed to saying something because you're saying something Mm mm-hmm Regardless of everything we've just discussed, I, when I, you know, when, as we started kind of discussing this subject, a, th- a thought that popped up into my head throughout, throughout our discussion is that there is room for optimism in the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, democracy is a project and it's always in development. And it was only recently that, that as I mentioned earlier, that Asians who immigrated here were able to be naturalized citizens. It wasn't that long ago. And I think we can take solace in the fact that as long as people are pushing, um, and it will always be the people at, at on the ground level pushing for a change that causes change, it will come because that I mean that is the great part about democracy and it it's of course hard in 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 a new media environment and confronting populist forces which are very strong. I mean populism is a very strong force in a lot of the problems that you mentioned that we are dealing with in America um, because, because, came because of a strong populist figure in Donald Trump. And he was able to direct a lot of anger at media and distrust that didn't necessarily exist before he came. And a lot of anger and distrust at politicians that didn't necessarily, wasn't at least as strong as before he came in. And I think the fact that despite a very strong populist figure being president in America, you still, you know, the day after his inauguration, he had one of the largest march, I think it was the largest march in in history with the Women's March. And I think that's also 
something we can take solace in is that there are people on the ground working and pushing. We've, we know more about our institutions and how they're failing us, what we can do to make them better. People are, are engaged. And despite everything, you know, 56 to 58% of Americans still thought that Trump should have been convicted. And sure, he wasn't, but they saw that, you know, that they, despite everything, they still saw the evidence. That's something I, I, I want to bandwagon off of in that, like, if, if anything, the last, even more than four, like four or five, even six years, whatever it may be, like the last, you know, few years have, have really shown how uh, committed grassroots organizations are and how important they are. And, you know, as much as we say young people are, you know, kind of uh, turned off from politics, there are still so many, you know, in schools and just on their own time, right, that are joining these on the ground local campaigns, pushing for their own elected officials to be elected, right? Like, there is so much more education happening around how our political system just inherently works, right? Like, flaws and everything, people are are more interested in how it works because they're interested in the ways in which they could help change it. And I think the amount of people that I've seen in my own town or just my own state, right, getting involved in local uh, races and campaigns, like that has, I feel like, really exploded over the past four years and is something that is, is really gaining momentum as see, people see like, you know, the politician in my state, you know, is, is not doing as much as they promised or, or didn't achieve anything they promised. We are going to really rally and, and push to elect this person that who I wholeheartedly believe will actually fulfill and, you know, fulfill the promises they made and, you know, take action on what they said. So that has been really inspiring to see just more people getting engaged, wanting to learn, being involved. Um, and that's something I think will continue far into the future. I am going to be uncharacteristically the most pessimistic person on this <laughs> podcast today. And then I'm going to pull a 180 on all of you and be the most optimistic, and then we can kind of close out. And Melissa will pose her, can you twist this into a problem that the two-party system encounters <laughs> question. I look at all of this, the civil activism, the civil society activism that exists, the grassroots organizations, as tremendously inspiring and very strong. And I think that is actually sort of the informal institution that is the strongest in the United States. If you, even, even in those groups of people that stormed the Capitol or, or applauded the storming of the Capitol on the 6th, they believed they were doing it to save democracy. Now, they, what they were fed in terms of the reasoning for that were lies and misinformation. And perhaps some of those people truly were seditious in terms of wanting to uproot democracy as it stands. And of course, belief in democracy has fallen in the United States over the last several years, but it is one of the most resilient institutions that we have, informal though it is, the belief in democracy and the belief in having a democratic republic. That being said, I see that as having that having that is the is is a wonderful thing and you should have that in this in the healthiest democracy and in, and in if you're going to remain a democracy in the worst of times for that democracy. But the fact that we are relying on a non-formalized institution, which is the faith of the people, essentially, in the kind of democracy they want to see, the kind of government that they want to see, that is the last-ditch resistance, it appears, to, in the face of, of great threats to 
our republic. There is there doesn't appear to be an institutional check that works today as it stands. We impeached this president twice. He was acquitted both times. He even attempted an, a sort of, I still prefer the German putsch, which is sort of an unorganized grab at power as opposed to a well-unplanned coup of the government. But if you are reliant, we should already have extremely well-educated citizens that understand how civil society works, how the civil service works, how government works. They don't need to know the ins and outs and what policy and what form you sign when you you know, join whatever organization or the NDAs that exist necessarily, right? But they should at least understand how government works at the local, state, and, and federal levels, and you still don't see that. You're seeing more and more people being educated, and that's, that's promising, that's exciting, that's, that's needed, that's necessary. But for that to be our only measurable course of action is extremely distressing to me. However, we've laid out all of these challenges, you know, multifaceted as they are, enormous in scope and scale, and reinforced by the other problems as they are, I still think that the, the United States has great potential to overcome them. And I still think that we will overcome them. Because as, and again, I'm gonna, I've quoted this on this podcast before, I've said it so many other times, but it is, I believe, a great truth of this country, as Alexis de Tocqueville once said, that the greatness of America lies not in her being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. And that is, I believe, what has always been great about the United States. Melissa, when you pointed out, you know, we, we Asian Americans couldn't even be naturalized until 1954. And before that, we had slavery. And before that, uh, well, not before that, but <laughs> early on, as we, we women couldn't vote. Or, and, and before that, it was only landowning white males. And bef before that, and as the country was getting started, we were looking at potentially only Protestant white males having any say in, in government at all. And we've come so far through what I'm sure back then seemed completely insurmountable ch you know, changes to undergo. It's just that we're all extremely aware of them today because in part of, of the, the strain that's been put on the system by so many things overlapping and building up, but also just in part because we're much more in tune and informed today than we are in the past. That being said, how you're informed matters, and and the we'll be talking plenty more about media on this, uh, and the role of media in, in democracy on this podcast, but I think we've gone well over time today. I've absolutely loved hearing your thoughts, um, and I hope we do this again soon, and perhaps on the, the next episode of uh, <laughs> democratic renewal that we do, essentially, we'll, we'll kind of pivot and talk about another democracy, maybe in Asia. Content, <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But uh, Melissa, mm. you have <laughs> okay. a challenge for me. Hmm. What can I... Okay, I have one. QAnon. Yeah. How can you tie QAnon to the two-party system? To the problem of two... That is a challenge. Here's, here's how I'd, I, I'd, I'd tie that first. Tie in my previous argument about, about media, right? I don't think you can have such a polarized media to begin with without 
a two-party system in the in the fashion that we have in the United States. I don't want to say that other countries don't also have extremely polarized views on media, but add into that in the American context the fact that we have shall I say a very healthy political imagination um, which has often unhealthy political consequences and the lack of sentiment that that people can actually affect change at the national governmental level in great part again because you have these problems which are exacerbated by the two-party system or caused directly by it and then throw in the 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 plausibility that there's there's a savior that will you know unearth the deep mysteries of the deep state which are clearly thwarting all of your well-intentioned efforts to fix the system as it were the system is quote-unquote rigged and and a uh, a very populist figure which again i don't think we would have in in quite the same way if we didn't have a an entire apparatus that that fell in line behind him because you have a two-party system and whoever our champion is that will be our champion and our mascot and we must follow him wherever i think that 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 the QAnon movement does stem in a great part from the challenges that are created by the two-party system i don't think we'd have it in quite the same way if we did have it at all without the two-party system I don't think I can say that it's a direct cause, though. So, maybe okay. we get half credit on that. I was gonna ask something harder, like, can the two I'm suggesting still... a grade to the teacher. <laughs> well, I think that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you very much to my good friends Diana Roy and Melissa Ballard in uh, somewhere in the middle of Massachusetts <laughs> and in Bonn, Germany. We'll be back next week to talk about uh, Africa and economic development and international development aid across the region, the AFCFPA, and all the kinds of alphabet soup. But that is it for this episode. If you liked this episode, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to us. It does help get the audience or get the podcast out to a wider audience. You can find us on Twitter at TWI Perspective and the INTL Scholar. Uh, you can check out our website as well, where we've got a lot of new stuff, really exciting content coming out in a quarterly, coming out in a few months. But for now, for myself in Cincinnati, for my good friends Melissa Ballard and Diana Roy in Bon Jovi's private residence across the river in Bonn, Germany, and the center of Massachusetts, it's goodbye. If, if people rate us, do they have only two choices? <laughs>